We are talking about confession tonight, and um, during our communion, that's an interesting hymn, Just As I Am, Without One Plea, But That Thy Blood Was Shed For Me. That song uh, has been interpreted by some to say that, you know, um, God takes us just the way we are with all our sin, and, you know, we don't have to, they give it a twist that, um, that is not part of the gospel. And it reminded me of uh, back, way back, before the Reformation, uh, a man named Desiderius Erasmus, who was a Catholic, and who was the one that gave us uh, the first Greek New Testament. Uh, the Catholic Church had, up to that time, English was brand new, and they had translated the word that was for repentance as penance. And they made it a work. They made it, in fact, let me read to you, I think I have something written down about this. He said this, Erasmus concluded that repent, repentance is not, quote-unquote, pious tears and obligatory duties. They had made penance, repentance, the term for repentance, they had made it a work. He said, but instead, it is a change of mind. And he goes back to the idea of what genuine repentance is. And of course, Erasmus's work played heavily on Martin Luther in understanding that proper understanding of repentance that it's not a work like penance, like we do, you know, penance. It's, it's you and I are repenting. Yes, we are coming to God just as I am, but we are coming to be forgiven. We're coming as sinners. Not, we're coming not for God to just pat us on the back and say, good job. And so when we, you know, we sing that song, what a, what a great tradition that you and I have, and what a blessing that, that He will forgive. Whosoever, in fact, if you notice on that song, is the verse John 6 37 in the in the rejoice hymns jesus said he that cometh to me i will in no wise cast out what a blessing all right let's go to jeremiah chapter three i have a full message prepared but um i'm just going to focus on one point so we may end up early we may end up late but not too late i promise you if i did the whole message then we would be late Uh, but we're just going to look at one point tonight As we come to Jeremiah chapter 2, we are coming now towards the end of the chapter. And uh, just a note about these last verses, beginning of verse 29, Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 29, down through the end of the chapter, which would be verse 37, is actually uh, broken up into two separate uh, kind of parts that some some believe that originally... um, as Jeremiah was preaching, of course you have different stages of his ministry, different times in Judah's history, and so he would maybe preach one sermon at this point, and then another sermon at a different point, and that what we have in Jeremiah is a culmination of his utterances, and everything's called together, and, and what we have in this form here. Some believe that the, this last part was actually two uh, sections that may have had separate origins as far as time and so forth like that. Uh, Both of them focus on, it's a series of pictures of irresponsibility and corruption on the part of Israel. Now verses 29 through 32 are in the plural. In fact, if you look at, uh, just to look at that, this is what our text was going to be tonight, the whole of 29 through 32. Uh, He says in verse 29, Ye all... 
in verse 32, my people. So it's, in, it's totally written to a plural group of people. Whereas from verse 29 through, or from verse 33 through 36, it's written in the singular. But it's talking to God's people and it is challenging them and, and laying out what we've already noted. And, and I want to remind you again, this thing called a rib pattern, rib, R-I-B, that's simply a Hebrew word to plead your case. To plead your case. And that is the term, the root term that is used in the verse we're going to look at tonight. Look at verse 29. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 29. Will ye plead with me? Will ye plead with me? He says. Ye all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. Now what's he saying? The word plead, plead with me, is this Hebrew term rib, which is literally a law court terminology. They were ushering, they were presenting a case against God. They were charging God. They were accusing Him. And, and that's what He's saying. Will ye plead with me? Will you bring charges against me? That's what they were doing. They were blaming God. And then God turns the tables and he's, oh no, just, just like Elijah. Remember Elijah and Ahab? Ahab sees Elijah. Here, art thou he that troubleth Israel? And Israel now, Judah, is saying to God, you're the one that's causing us the problems. And God says, paraphrasing, oh no. Oh no, don't you charge me there. He goes, ye all have transgressed, and that term has the idea of you've rebelled, Against me, saith the Lord. So we're going to spend our next, you know, our last time, a few minutes here tonight, focusing on this idea that who is the rebel? Who is the rebel? Israel is charging God with being the whole reason for their problems. But that is not new. It was not new then, and it is certainly not new now, where people are accusing God, charging God foolishly. And again, I want to go back to what I mentioned this morning. The issue of pain and suffering. The issue of God punishing His children in this context. Or just the issue of God allowing problems in someone's life, like Job. That is enough to bring some people to lay fault with God. And that's what makes Job so amazing. When you look at all he went through that we looked at this morning, losing all his possessions, his finances went from prosperity to total, you know, nothingness. Then he lost his family, his children. Then the next day he lost his health. But remember, in that whole thing, in this, after day one, Job charged God he sinned not nor did he charge God foolishly and yet Israel now let's fast forward now Israel Judah they're charging God foolishly they're saying God you're the reason you're the problem we're not the problem you're the problem just like Ahab did to Elijah here's the problem here's the troublemaker he had just he had just he was still in the, the tail end of experiencing famine in the land three years of famine and here comes Elijah, and you can almost imagine that this was brewing in his heart. You know, th- I can't imagine what it would be like to go three years through of famine. 
drought. It was tough. And as the king, he was front and center of being aware of all the sufferings of his people because of it. And you can just imagine it was stewing. Because he's literally, he's got to blame someone. There's guilt here. Now, he was the reason, but because of this prophet that pronounced, the one that pronounced the drought was going to come, and he was the problem. And, and you can just imagine, you know, what John, you used a phrase one time that I've not forgotten. And I've heard this, I've now seen this a million times. That when someone's bitter, it's like you're allowing them to live rent-free in your, in your brain. That's a good phrase. So imagine that, um, I imagine here that, uh, at least with Elijah, that, um, or excuse me, with Ahab, that Elijah was in his mind rent-free, you know, for three years. Because as soon as he sees Elijah, you can just imagine, I, I'm sure this was not said happily. Oh, are you the one that's troubling Israel? There was great bitterness and anger. You're the problem. There's anger here. There's blame. And I love it. Elijah does not cower. Elijah doesn't say, I'm sorry, it's really not. You know, he didn't. He said, I'm not troubling Israel. Thou, you are troubling Israel because of your wickedness and your sin. I love that. What an amazing thing. Well, now, here we are. Different scenario, different, still the people of Israel. We've got Judah. And now they're charging God. They're bringing a case against God. This rib, again, the Hebrew word rib, remember that. Because that's the format of Jeremiah. Much of Jeremiah, especially in these chapters we've been looking at. And this was very common in the scriptures and in other, uh, of, of other countries during this time. That there was a legal form. And the way that Jeremiah is written follows this legal pattern that there's a charge that is brought against someone. And God is bringing his charge against Israel, the people of Judah. But in this text tonight, they're charging God. And God can't believe it. Why will you plead? You're bringing charges against me? Is, is what God is saying. He's, they're arguing their case. And folks, I want to remind you. Again, I'm, we're thinking of Job. We were just there this morning. This has been a big issue for people down through the ages, whether it's the Holocaust uh, or, or anyone else. There's a book that came out over a decade ago. And uh, in fact, there was a man who was brought up, uh, many of you have heard of Princeton Theological Seminary. We jokingly call it Princeton Theological Cemetery today. And I've mentioned to you, and I love this fact, is that Princeton does have a cemetery but Princeton used to be a theologically sound, doctrinally gospel-preaching seminary. And so a lot of those people buried in that seminary, uh, it's been said, and I love this, there is more spirituality in the cemetery at Princeton than there is in the seminary at Princeton. Uh, I love that. But in that, there was a, a, a famous teacher, he's passed away. In fact, he passed away, I think, when I was still alive, but he was... Um, like one of the old guards back when Princeton, before it went really bad. And his name was um, Metzger, Bruce Metzger. Now, I remember in, in Greek class, one of our texts was by Bruce, Bruce Metzger. In fact, I just can hear Tom Wolf saying, all right, take out Metzger. And that didn't mean we had to bring out the guy. It meant we had to pull out the book that he wrote. And here's a guy now. There's a man. 
that sat under Bruce Metzger, a Bible believer. And I want, to, I want you to listen to, because this man came out with a book, and I think it was 2011, it was over a decade ago. He came out with a book called this, How the Problem of Pain Ruined My Faith. He is now a well-known, probably America's most biggest known atheist. I don't want to read to you what he said in his own words. He said, For most of my life I was a devout Christian, believing in God, trusting in Christ for salvation, knowing that God was actively involved in this world. Wow. So I, I hear that and I'm like, good, good. Again, for most of my life I was a devout Christian. In fact, that's what do you mean you were? Trusting in, in trusting in Christ alone for salvation, knowing that God was actively involved in this world. During my youth, adulthood, he said, during my young adulthood, I was an evangelical with a firm belief in the Bible as the inspired and inerrant word of God. During those years, I had fairly simple but commonly held views about how there can be so much pain and misery in the world. God has given us free will. We weren't like programmed robots. But since we were free to do good, we were also free to do evil. Hence, the Holocaust, the genocide in Cambodia, and so on. To be sure, this view did not explain all evil in the world, but a good deal of suffering was a mystery, and in the end, God would make right all that was wrong. Okay? In my mid-twenties, I left the evangelical fold, but I remained a Christian for some 20 years. That's my quotes, not his. A God-believing, sin-confessing, church-going Christian who no longer held to the inerrancy of Scripture, but who did believe that the Bible contained God's Word, trustworthy as the source of theological reflection. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I hear that. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. What are you saying? Something's wrong here. Your terminology is now changing. Uh, And he goes on. He says, um... And the more I studied the Christian tradition, do you see himself, you see distancing himself from Christianity? The more I studied the Christian tradition, first as a graduate student in seminary, and then as a young scholar teaching biblical studies at universities, the more sophisticated I became in my theological views. You mean the more arrogant you became, maybe? Again, I don't know, but I do know what the result was. The more sophisticated I became in my theological views and in my understanding of the world and our place in it, suffering increasingly became a problem for me and my faith. Again, the title of the book is How the Problem of Pain Ruined My Faith. How can one explain all the pain and misery in the world if God the creator and redeemer of all, is sovereign over it, exercising his will both on the grand scheme and in the daily workings of our lives. And he goes on in that book, and basically he follows the, um, the mantra that Darwin's and Mill in the 19th century wrote. And uh, as one man said, these writers love to prattle on about how they, and here's a phrase you'll hear, how they in good conscience could not worship a monster. 
And this other writer said, they love denouncing from this ethical high ground using the fruits of the Christian tradition, such as compassion and equal worth of all human life, to pummel the faith. And that's this man that I'm talking about is named Bart Ehrman. And uh, he has a problem. In fact, that has created a whole group of people called the New Atheists. And uh, he is an intellectual giant, but he is, you know, I would say an apostate. He once embraced, at least theoretically, the Christian faith. And I'm telling you, multitudes of people that are drawn towards intellectualism, uh, he has caused many to renounce their Christianity. Uh, he is, he is, uh, has great effect. But what is it? I want you to think about this. What is it that caused this man to walk away from his belief in God? Again, it's this idea, I can't in good conscience worship a monster. And I submit to you, wait a minute, you obviously do not know who God is. I go back to Job. If anybody knew suffering, it was Job. And Job, Job was the antithesis of Bart Ehrman. Whereas Bart Ehrman stumbled over this idea of pain and suffering. And that brings me to, we're going to move since I'm only doing one point here. I want you to go to Psalm 73. We're going to close with this psalm. Because there's another man that would be like Job. And it would kind of be like maybe, you know, Job's over here and he never lost his faith. And then Bart Ehrman's over over here, and he really lost his faith. And then somewhere in between there is a guy named Asaph in the Old Testament. And Asaph was not as strong as Job. You know, he didn't have the attitude, at least initially, you know, naked, you know, naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither, the Lord gave, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now he struggled. So look at Psalm 73. For just a few minutes. We'll close with this. Because again, this ties in with where Israel's mentality was. You're going to blame God? Because God has chastened you, and that's what it's about, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. Because God had chastened them lovingly to bring them back. And because of that, they're now going to make charges against God? Let's look at Psalm 73. It's called a Psalm of Asaph. And he begins, um, it's kind of like our prayer meetings, you know, during our prayer meetings, uh, I was noting over the years that uh, prayer meetings could become really depressing. If it's just about all the things that are wrong that we need to pray about. And there would be many times after prayer meeting, I would just be, I'd be down. Because, and you know, and I realized that, you know, it's so easy to pull people down when you're talking about, oh, This is wrong in my life, and this is wrong, and it's so easy for all of us. Remember what Spurgeon said, one downcast believer makes 20 sad, something like that. Well, that's that's what our prayer meeting was. So, you know, when we started doing this online, made a big push that I want us, yes, we want to hear prayer requests, but folks, we want to praise God through it all. And we want to, and we've been doing this very well most of the time. Uh, Even though we have prayer requests and burdens, uh, you know, people like Serena, every time, first thing out of her mouth, I want to thank God that I'm saved. Don't you love that? I love that. And so we've been more positive because, folks, we have every reason to be positive. 
not in the uh, Norman Vincent Peale, smiley face guy with the globe behind him, whatever. You know, not in that way, but in the idea of you and I have a great God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And therefore, His grace is exceeding so that in all things we have sufficiency, no matter what. And that was a big, loose paraphrase of a verse in Corinthians. And so, this is, I think, this is kind of like Asaph. Because he's going to start out in a bummer. He's going to start out, oh my, oh my. He's complaining. But it's almost like he, he knows he wants to control. So, so he starts off by, by basically saying what he learned. So before he starts complaining, he says this in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel. Even to such as are of a clean heart. So he starts off there. And then he says, but, verse 2. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Why? Asaph, what's wrong? For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's exactly what happened at Judah. They looked at all the nations around them. They looked at the nations in Canaan where they went. And they saw the pleasure and the flesh and you know pagan worship with Balaam and Ashtaroth and Moloch. And, and they looked at that and thought, man, they've got the life. Asaph looked around. And he saw wicked people prosper. He said there are no, verse 4, there are no bands, restrictions in their death, but their, their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speaketh wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. These are arrogant, boastful people that have no time for God. Therefore, and, and so he's just, he's just lamenting. And he's down. He's struggling with seeing how God is good. He doesn't go so far as Judah to charge God foolishly to lay a legal case against him saying, we have a problem. But he almost did. And thankfully, just to get to the end of it, verse 17. In fact, he says, um, verse 16, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. And I want to remind you folks, what you meditate on is going to lead you down one or two of different emotional paths. You start getting in the wrong frame of mind. You start getting the wrong headgear. You start letting the wrong thing in your mind. And it will be too painful. That's what happened to Bart Ehrman. He followed it. But then Asaph says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. So he's, he's, saying, he's basically saying, I forgot about God. I was looking at the here and now. I was looking at the temporary. I was looking at the earthly things. I wasn't looking at the eternal. But when I put God back in the picture, when I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. And then he goes on in a whole different mentality. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down uh, into destruction. How, how are they brought into desolation? And so he just totally changed his tune and said, You know what? I don't envy them anymore. Yes, life is not fair. 
But life is not over. And when it's all said and done, and we stand before God, the thing that Bart Ehrman mocked, that God was going to set things right, is what's going to happen. So you and I, don't be a Bart Ehrman. Be a Job. Realize that we started out with nothing in this world. God owes us nothing. God owed Israel nothing. They owed him everything. And, and blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray for your blessing as we wrestle with pain and suffering. Uh, Lord, we, we all have a good dose of it. We all experiencing it. We all experience it. And unless you call us home right this minute, uh, we're going to continue doing it until you do call us home. Uh, but Lord, help us not to struggle and help us not to charge you foolishly. Help us not to lay an accusation against you uh, when you lovingly, as a, a father does to a child, you lovingly chasten us because of your love, because we're special to you. And that's exactly what you did with Judah. And they missed it. So Lord, help us to learn these lessons and help us to be blessed. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, take your